0: plus. Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Antonio Kyler about access, diversity, equity, and inclusion in cultural organizations insights from the careers of executive opera managers of color in the US. Uh, so, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Dave.
2: Um, this, I mean, this is an incredibly sort of important uh, book. It's it's really sort of of the moment uh, in terms of uh, major debates in the cultural sector. But it's also a book um, that is 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 kind of personally quite quite fascinating, and and it's one of those academic books where your investment in, in the field really comes through. And and I think the place to start is with this sense of your kind of personal interest why were you interested in writing about opera what, what's your sort of your personal history with opera
1: oh that's such a great question um so i i attended a performing arts high school and um and, and my my area was voice and um i went there as a freshman in high school and um at the time i thought you know i'm just going there to improve my singing. But my real aspiration was to become a, a gospel singer. Um, and so I got exposed to opera. And uh, it really just opened up this whole other world that I was not even aware of and um, uh, allowed me to expand my my uh, view of what was possible in terms of having a career in the arts and culture and um, I, I definitely remember, um, especially a story. My sophomore year, I had a, a teacher who taught this music comprehension class, and we were having a discussion about individual opera singers. And um, he mentioned Jesse Norman and Kathleen Battle, and I had not heard of those two singers. I was aware of Marian Anderson, uh, Roland Hayes, and so uh, uh, he said, "You know, you don't you don't know Jesse Norman or Kathleen Battle." I was like, "No, I've never heard of them." And so he uh, really allowed me and worked with me to kind of teach me about who they were. But from there, I I took that uh, opportunity and took that, you know, that, that the learning that was gained from that and went and studied very intently um, opera singers, uh, including Black opera singers. Black opera singers were the entry point into opera for me. And, um, you know, I, until then, I, I didn't even know that it was possible. Uh, again, I was aware of Marian Anderson, I, I remember in middle school, uh, reading a Times Magazine article about her when she died. But beyond that, I didn't know the full, um, you know, extent of Black people's participation in opera, and and so that's where it started for me in in high school, and then I went on to study voice as an undergraduate, um, and then I went on to after finishing my bachelor's degree, I decided that I I wasn't sure if singing was the right. Place for me in opera, and so I thought, oh, I'll get a degree in arts administration uh, at the suggestion of my voice professor, who said you managed your senior recital so well that I I think you should pursue a career in arts administration. And so I went to graduate school for arts admin, and with the intent of becoming an artistic administrator, I wanted to have power around uh, casting operas and um, auditioning operas because I thought, you know, I had a very good understanding of the voice. Um, And even I remember my junior year in college, I had, I was taking, I planned to take opera lit and I had a professor say to me, why in the world are you taking that course? You, you could teach the course. (laughs) Um, So I had this encyclopedic knowledge about opera and classical music. And I needed something to do with it beyond singing, and so I, I became interested in opera management and um, how that can can be an opportunity as well for for uh, Black, Indigenous, and people of color.
2: I mean that early experience, um, and I guess that um, almost sort of lack of profile um, around um, in. In the initial case, opera singers of color, but I guess uh, people of color more generally um, in 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 opera as a as a genre and art form as an industry really gestures towards I guess the kind of problem uh, that opera has, um, and and what the book does really well, kind of early on, is say, well, actually, you know, currently there are issues around racial equity in in opera, um, but actually this is a kind of longer historical issue, and I suppose the sort of the question that, that comes to mind is not just the sort of what's the problem with opera, um, but I guess where does your interest in in researching this and and almost kind of researching for change relate to that problem?
1: Well, you know, it started with my own personal journey. I, you know, I as I was completing my master's degree in arts administration and having completed, you know, big summer internships with Central City Opera, the Spoleto Festival USA. Uh, with Trap, you know, I did these, I chose very specifically uh, internships that I thought would advance my career in opera. And then as I was wrapping up my my master's degree, the um, association, the service or trade or association here in the States uh, that is related to and connected to opera and ensuring opera's uh, production and distribution and enjoyment, they used to have these fellowship programs. And uh, I applied for a fellowship program, and they had this kind of like three-pronged process by which applicants were considered. And so what would happen is you'd have the first kind of stage of the process was you submitting your application. And then the second stage was to go and visit with an opera executive um, who was working at an opera company near you. And that person assessed if you were ready to move on to the third level. And um, you know, they determined if you got to move on in the process for consideration for a fellowship. And I thought, okay, I have a bachelor's degree in voice. I have um, I'm finishing a master's degree in arts administration. I've developed this knowledge um, where I, I worked in the opera department at Florida State and I did these internships at Central City Opera, Spoleto Festival USA, Wolf Trap Opera, like I thought I had, you know, effectively curated the profile of someone who would be successful in one of these fellowship programs and what happened was I wasn't selected and I um, to this day i'm not exactly sure why i wasn't selected um but it it was a it was an eye-opening experience to to be credentialed and to have this experience um and actually I, the one piece of feedback i remember receiving was the person who i met with um didn't think i had enough experience which um you know, it's irritating in a way because I'm like, well, I have a bachelor's and a master's and then these like strong internships plus whatever experience I had from those internships and my graduate assistantships. But then also the idea that wasn't that the job of the fellowship to give me the kind of experience that he was saying that I lacked. And so, um, you know, personally, it kind of opened up this um, door for me to wonder, well, how often are people um, who are historically and continuously oppressed kept out of spaces because of language like you don't have the right experience or you don't have any experience or what other um, you know ways that we make up um, or reasons we make up to keep people excluded and to keep people out of these opportunities. And so that was my own personal experience really kind of um, opened the door for me to ask these questions from a researcher's perspective, because I also begin to wonder, you know, well, how much more experience do I need? Who do I have to be to chart a path towards the executive level management experience in opera? What else do I need to know? Who else do I need to know? What kind of social networking do I need to, um, to, that I need to have? And so another thing that that experience did for me was it caused me to pivot from um, kind of pursuing this professional career uh, as an arts manager or opera manager into becoming an academic and a scholar and, and observing, looking, asking questions, interrogating some of the experiences that people were having.
2: And you've done that in a, in a very, uh, I suppose, sort of particular way by by drawing on um, very detailed uh, career interviews with, with some some really crucial respondents. Um, and I'm I'm sort of wondering in, in terms of the balance of the book, you know, there, there's so much in um, the 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 interviews and, and how to sort of do do them justice, but. Um, perhaps we'll try and do as, as, as many as we, we can in the time. The, the approach the book takes, I suppose, both asks um, the interviewees to, to do a sort of, you know, career kind of retrospective almost, but at the same time draws out really um, crucial findings around um, how success functions, what what sort of things are necessary in terms of mentorship, networks, um, the, the need for um, almost, you know, things like look in, in careers. And I guess within that, each, um, I, I don't know if you did this intentionally, but each story has a almost sort of slightly different focus. And if we start with um, Henry uh, Akina, I, I think, um, if I pronounce that correctly, one of the things that, that really stood out re- reading his story was initially he kind of told the story about not actually wanting to be involved. <laughs> and it, it was interesting if we're reflecting on kind of, you know, success or, or access Um, why you chose a story of someone being like, well, maybe this isn't for me to begin with.
1: Yeah, um, you know, uh, Mr. Akina, so I started the, the book in 2005 as my dissertation study. And so 2005 and 2017, or 18, uh, when I got to interview him, there was lots of time that had passed. And, you know, thinking longitudinally about like a qualitative study, um, because I I wondered how much change would happen between when I started collecting the data for the dissertation initially, versus, you know, what's happening right now and what was happening right before the racial reckoning of 2020. And I had no idea at the time that, my, my work would have such resonance and be compelling in that way. What I did have an inkling of, and, and I'm not a prophet and I don't have any mystical powers, but that this conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, um, or ADEI, as I call it, access, diversity, equity, and inclusion, would be on this kind of like cyclical um, um, trope where we would continuously return to it. Because... Uh, you know we weren't addressing it and and so with mr akina he he was very adamant about not wanting to participate so much so that uh, michael ching who's also in the book when we spoke he said uh, if you want me to i can make sure that he participates in the study and i said you know no i think it's okay um, you know, you, you know, you and and Willie Anthony Waters and Linda Jackson have given me what I needed, um, and so I'm just going to wait and and return to it once I've allowed the dissertation to sit for a few years, and and see what happens. And so when I revisited the conversation with him, he was so generous. He was so uh, appreciative for me uh, reaching back out to him. And he said he he actually apologized and said at the time, I was um, just kind of frustrated around this question and this topic of diversity and how people were addressing it. And um, I now understand the importance of what you were trying to do at the time.
2: I mean, it's you said that you, you, you're not a prophet and it, it, it's interesting, isn't it? The, the if not cyclical nature of uh, these questions but but effectively the stickiness of them you know that um despite you know some rhetorical in- interventions from from key organizations um questions of access diversity equity and in- inclusion just just really never go away uh, particularly in um, various i suppose kind of elite art forms and, and within um, elite professions and and some of the i guess the kind of stories that, that you've you've collected through the interviews are, are stories of success and in in some ways you know if if someone uh, was looking to to think about well how do I navigate my way through um, there are there are things that we can learn in in terms of success and 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 Tori allen's story uh, i think is one of those um kind of interesting success stories because what i teased out from that was was the sense of you don't really need an opera background to to kind of make it you know it's not um going to be the the you know the be all and and, and sort of end all but interestingly at the same time there was a real kind of immersion in the world of opera that came through that story
1: yeah um and especially how he just kind of uh that gets to the serendipity of it right that um, someone can fall into it based on their artistic talent, and and not even know that maybe they have this managerial and leadership capability um, as a result of of you know wanting to transition and do something different. And so I I definitely think that um, Tori's narrative is supportive of the idea of serendipity, but also from a cultural organization standpoint, it it speaks so importantly to why arts education is important because um, there are other folks who um, need cultural organizations to be interventions for helping them to understand how they too can live a creative and expressive life through arts and culture. And, and whether that be opera or orchestras or ballet or, you know, other um, art forms that we consider quote unquote high. Uh, at this point, I, I feel like it's, it's all high. <laughs> it's all important. It's all, you know, um, I'm done for the love of humanity, and so um, yeah, you know, Tori was, and 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 I I maintained a um, a very good professional relationship with him. In fact, um, Tori, we are working on a book proposal in which he's um, planning to contribute a few book chapters on um, related to arts fundraising right now, and so his story is is definitely one of those that I I point to when people are are seeking. Advice about well, how do I navigate this space? And especially since cultural organizations in the United States right now, um, uh, post George Floyd, are trying to find Black Indigenous um, executives and managers of color.
2: I mean that moment is is, is particularly fascinating, and, and it makes me think. Actually, we'll skip Wayne Brown, and we'll, we'll come back back to Wayne Brown and and, and the idea of mentorship, but one of the things that came out of michael chings chapter was was this comment right at the very end where he talks about arts administration as a kind of hidden field and this sits um i suppose quite uneasily with the idea that organizations are really attempting you know to to do much broader recruitment um and and have a much more diverse uh, set of of arts administrators of, of arts managers and, and I wonder if you could kind of unpack that idea of arts administration being a, a hidden field what was Michael meaning by that and I guess what, what does it tell us about arts administration as a set of professions? Yeah well you know I,
1: I think what Michael um, meant by that when he said that is um, it's kind of that whole good old boy kind of um, practice uh, or the practice of nepotism. If you know about it, um, then you can get in and almost exploit the opportunity to maximize its potentiality for success for you. And so, I think it is. It is. People don't always think about what happens behind the scenes, and and the way in which a lot of us, I think, are even attracted to arts and culture is through. The performance aspect or the exhibiting aspect, the the artistic exp- aspects of arts and culture is what um, becomes a lot of our entry points. I, I came into arts and culture by singing gospel music at church, right? That was my entry point into exploring um, the full uh, possibilities and the vastness of possibilities available to me through arts and culture. It started with gospel music, which was at home, but also at church. And so... Um, you know, Michael, I think touched on something that was very important: is that uh, arts administration, arts management, r- remained uh, uh, um, remains even to this day to an extent a hit and feel because they're um, in comparison to um, degree programs around specific arts practices, there are less. Degree programs uh, for arts management and, and, and cultural policy, arts leadership, and those kinds of things. And so, uh, it's kind of funny when people ask me what I do. I even remember when my when I was trying to explain my dissertation topic to my dad, um, and I you know I I said to him, you know, have you ever gone to a concert or gone to a museum and had the experience of arts and culture and wondered who decided what you were going to see or what you were going to hear. And, and, and so he said yes. And I was like, well, I teach people how to do that. That's what I do. And so, um, yeah, like it, it. And I think we've made some progress towards opening up the field and, and letting people know that it, it exists. But I've had several friends who um all identify as people of the global majority, they might be of African descent or Asian descent, who said if they had known about arts management or arts leadership, um, you know, when they were going through their undergraduate or graduate studies, they would have pursued that path. And so, you know, when you hear that, it's kind of, it's disturbing to me because I'm wondering, well, What can the like, you know, educational associations like the European Network of Cultural Administration training centers, or the Association of Arts Administration Educators, or the Southeastern Arts Leadership um, Association, what can they do to make arts management, arts leadership, arts administration more visible to more people?
2: I mean, it sounds sort of trite to say one of the things within this is mentorship. And I think actually that you know this is in in the book a little bit and more broadly in the field there are lots of problems with uh, the idea of mentorship being able to kind of fix every structural issue that we find in in, in the arts. But mentorship is is clearly one of those ways that um, people get involved in that um, you know slightly hidden. Uh, network, that slightly uh, hidden world of, of nepotism, and Wayne Brown, you know, sort of raised it in the conversation, it, it was clearly important, and to an extent it's, it's important to everybody you talk to, but but it really stood out in, in, in Wayne Brown's um, narrative, so I wonder if you, you could say a bit about why mentorship matters
1: Yeah, um, you know I think that is probably the biggest takeaway from the book um, is that folks who explicitly and and candidly describe the benefits of mentorship for them individually. Uh, At the time, only Tori was actively mentoring the next generation or the next generations of people who could potentially become opera managers and executive opera managers of color. And so, um, you know, there was, in my discussion with Wayne, um, I was a bit. Um, how do I, how do I describe this diplomatically? Um, because he explicitly said at one point in our interview that he just he did not just want to mentor potential black administrators, which I I understand, right? As a as an educator, um, I want to be a mentor for a variety of students and a variety of people. Um, And and I would never want to limit someone to only mentoring people who are like them. But the benefits that he expressed himself for having mentors who were like him, for him to not be able to see how that could be instrumental to um, advancing the careers of other people who look like him at the time... um, I was I was disturbed by that, and but what it also revealed to me from a researcher standpoint was that people's racial identity development processes are different, and there is a generational lens that comes along with that, right? Most of the um, the participants in the book were um, baby boomers, and and so baby boomers got to benefit from affirmative action policies, even if they had a negative reaction to the idea that affirmative action may have uh, assisted them in their career paths. Uh, Almost all of them expressed a negative uh, reaction to affirmative action. But at the same time, I don't think that they all understood that affirmative action at the core of the policy is the suggestion that white people are not always It's not even possible that white people can always be the right choice for every single job. Statistically speaking, it's just not possible. And so affirmative action actually opens the door and says, okay, um, if white people are not always the best possible person for a job, how do we identify, recruit and retain people who are not white, people who are of the global majority? And so um, what I would like to share is I was very, very pleased that this year, earlier this year in April, um, there is a group that has emerged uh, as a collective um, and they identify themselves as the Black Administrators of Opera. And I was very pleased to learn that um, Wayne Brown and Athan Battle, who is uh, a new black female executive opera manager after Linda Jackson. She's the second. Um, they were able to have a mentorship session with this group and and that Wayne actively participated in that um, because I feel like it was a complete turnaround from where he was when we spoke in t- 2017. And so I don't know that I don't know what caused the change, but I, I, uh, I like to hypothesize or theorize that the racial reckoning of 2020 and that we're still experiencing to some extent may be helped to, um, you know, cause uh, the evolution of his thinking about that.
0: slash NBN
2: fifty to get fifty percent off. I was struck that you'd mentioned the sort of complexity of racial consciousness. And 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 one of the things that was really brilliant, I think, about Linda Jackson's um chapter and 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 actually the, the overall um conversation you'd had with her was the way she was able to bring in things like well what about sexism in, in opera and you know more broadly Um, in the world of of arts administration and that intersection of of racism and sexism, I think is something that, um, you know, is occasionally a risk um, that that gets um, maybe put to one side or, or or left out when, when we're discussing questions of access in in the arts, but she was able to give, I I think quite a nuanced um, and quite powerful um, narrative around it. So, I'm, I'm trying to formulate this as a question that isn't just tell me about Linda Jackson because it sounded fascinating.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, um, you're right. I I, I appreciate and, and love how she held the space as the only um, woman of color at the time when I was collecting the data who held an executive position or had held an executive position with an opera company. And I love that. I didn't get the sense when I was speaking with her that being Black or being woman was more important, that they were equally important. And when Kimberly Crenshaw talks about intersectionality, I, I think Linda's narrative is a perfect example of that because um, she spoke to some of the very nuanced, kind of targeted experiences that she had as a Black woman. And, it's, and it almost, to me... Said that you know, if you were an Asian woman or an Indigenous woman, um, your experiences dealing with racism and sexism will be different, and I, and I think that's a fair assessment and argument to make that um, when we're when we're thinking about addressing um, historic and continuous oppression, we have to think about it intersectionally. Right now, I'm working on some um, on a study where I'm thinking about how do we identify those people who are historically and continuously oppressed across all social identities? A person who is queer, trans, poor, and of color, is going to have a different story to tell about what it means to be human than someone who may be historically or continuously oppressed by one of their social identities or none of their social identities. And so how do we identify those those folks and empower and support them in telling what their stories are? Um, Because the linking intersectional identities um, means then that their oppression is compounding, you know, um, quadruply compounded in some cases. And, and so for me also, I think if, that, if that's happening, then um, the deafness in which they can tell us about what it means to be human um, is even greater, it's even greater. And so uh, I, I am always thinking about, even when I'm doing survey research, how can we lift up the voices of the most historically and continuously marginalized and oppressed and take their voices, center them in a way that we can create policies and practices that uplift them. And by uplifting them, we can uplift all of us.
2: I mean, that, that's one of the great Lessons of the book, I, I, I think, and um, one of the things I, w- I was going to ask you um, was for these sort of general lessons that, that you've teased out of the the interviews. But before that, and you know, I, I sort of think it would be a shame to miss um, the the story that Maestro Willie Walters told you. But it, it's an interesting um, juxtaposition with with what you've just been saying because, in, in some ways, the Maestro story was. Uh, this sounds terrible, but he kind of got lucky, you know, or he was in the right place at the right time. He was able to kind of respond to opportunities, and at the same time as the work of of kind of lifting up and, and representing, I suppose there's also the question about how do you make sure people are in situations where they can get lucky, where they can respond to possibilities and opportunities. So. How did did luck figure in the maestro's career? Yeah, you know,
1: you call it luck, and I call it serendipity, um, which I think are are essentially the same thing. Um, that sometimes there are things outside of our control that pushes us in particular directions, and and the thing is, I think, how do you teach people to be responsive and sensitive to serendipities? Um, trying to push them in the right direction. Because I think in all of those cases, all six of those those folks' narratives, serendipity played a point and a part. Uh, none of them said that they intentionally sought out the executive career path in opera. Not one of them, right? And And so I've taught students who are of the global majority who have sought out Um, a career path that will lead them to the executive suite. And um, those students have faced some some barriers, some challenges. and, And I thought, you know, as people of the global majority, and this was, again, this was before summer of 2020's racial reckoning, where I thought, oh, things have changed enough for the millennials that they won't have the same challenges to an access, uh, accessing uh, career options and career possibilities that would chart them on the path towards um, executive leadership if that's what they aspire to do. And um, some of my students, just some of the stories that they told me about some of the things that they face, some of the racialized microaggressions, and these are, in my view, students who were Um, solidly positioned to to take advantage of all of the opportunities available to them that would help them along the way. Uh, And and so, but I think one of the missing pieces for for those folks were mentorship um, and and mentorship that was cross-cultural, but also mentorship by folks who look like them. Um, and so, for example, I have a, a, a former student who I just I I mean I, I thought she was going to be able to do amazing things. I taught her at SUNY Purchase, and I think so highly of her. And I'm still like you know, but she's she's been traumatized by some of the racial microaggressions that she faced. Um, and, you know, she even spoke out about some of those things once the racial reckoning opened up the possibility for conversations and, and, um, you know, you um, contrition and, and forgiveness and discussions to happen where people might be invited back into the fold with new experiences. And and so I was recently speaking with her about a possibility and I was so grateful that she responded to it because I I think she's one of the next leaders and I'm just trying to figure out how to get her in the, the right place with the right social network, um, uh, so that she can have the same experience, and, and you know, Maestro Waters, um, he identified those mentors, and even though serendipity was there, kind of nudging him along, and it wasn't, you know, necessarily um, a career that he kind of sought out. Um, it came to him, and and I, I I I just wish that there was a way um, to help people. Who who don't know that they want this connect with it, and and I think that's the big challenge. And I think mentorship is um, a way to do that. It's a part of the um, the the equation or a part of the recipe for success um, in in arts management in general, but especially in opera. Opera can be, and I, and this is you know coming from me where I love opera. I I listen to opera. Um, often I studied it. I, I, you know, I've made several, you know, big sacrifices and investments to to understand this art form. But I, I understand how opera can be very cliquish and very um, exclusionary. And, you know, if you don't know um, the right singers or the right folks, it can it can it can be a very difficult um space to navigate and so um, so yeah I I I I think that uh, Maestro Waters' story is it reflects very well uh, what happens when serendipity meets mentorship and and that becomes a part of the equation for
2: career success the final chapter basically does what you've just done there (laughs) it summarizes um, various of the um lessons the um both you know kind of markers for success but but also barriers um to success and, and it tries to, to really um synthesize these stories in, into um a broader reflection on access diversity equity and inclusion in in opera and you've mentioned actually that some of the specific dynamics of opera but more broadly in, into the cultural sector and as we conclude but before we um Maybe pick up on on what you're working on on now. What what do you think some of some of the lessons overall are in terms of where opera is going and where the cultural sector might be, both in terms of post 2020. But I, I suppose. Are we likely to be coming back in another decade in another fifteen years, where I might be asking you about a book you've written with almost exactly the same career stories, but with younger people, or are there um, things that are likely to come from these career stories that are going to generate real, long-lasting change?
1: Yeah, I, I, I hope that it is the latter, um, and I, but I think what what's going to happen is that. It's a variation on a on a theme where um, we have to be so diligent about keeping our eye on the target because the target is a shape shifter. It morphs into something else, but it doesn't really change. It only appears to change. And so I will say, um, you know, since I, I wrote the book, and um, as you said, I I you know, with qualitative research. It can be difficult to synthesize across narratives because um, what you want is for a naturalistic generalization to happen where the reader constructs their own meaning and their learning from the cases and, and what they would bring from all of the cases together. And so, um, you know, mentorship is so important. And um, I continue to advocate for mentorship and intergenerational mentorship, because I think that um, just because a person is older and may be more experienced or or may have more status does not mean that they cannot also learn from someone who is younger. And so I think that a mentorship model that acknowledges that fact um, could be beneficial for moving more historically and continuously marginalized and oppressed folks forward together, um, the racial identity development piece is something that I am still actually reflecting on to this day. Is how do we um, how do we make space for a, a capacious space for and and. Um, um, grace and compassion for the multiplicity of ways that people understand their racial identities and 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 how their racial identity intersects with other historically and continuously marginalized identities um because sometimes uh you know there was a a, um it was zora neale hurston who said that um, um some skin folk are are not kin folk, right? So just because a person might look like a person of the global majority, or they might be melanated in a particular kind of way, does not mean that they think a certain kind of way. And so one of the um, the examples I give is that, for example, in the United States, we have black Republicans, even though most black Americans um, uh, vote as Democrats. There are um, black Republicans and I'm a black independent, for example. And so it, 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 it is a fact that you cannot expect for all melanated people or all people of the global majority to think the same way because they're not the same way, even if they share, you know, the racial identity and the, um, longitudinal historically historic or continuous trauma that along with having that racial identity, um, People process that and understand it in different ways and react and respond to it in different ways. So for me, I'm uncomfortable um, being a barrier to other people of the global majority uh, coming into the field. But there are some people of the global majority who have understood that some cultural organizations and the creative sector to a certain degree is going to tokenize. And so... Um, they would rather be the token um, and, and, and be a gatekeeper through being the token versus being a part of opening the space up to as many people of the global majority as is possible so that more of us can come in and do the work of helping cultural organizations and the creative sector better understand um, the experiences of, of people who are, are historically and continuously marginalized and oppressed, as well as what that could mean for providing more um, resonant, culturally responsive and culturally rele- relevant arts experiences for more people. Um, and then, you know, one of the things that I'm very fascinated by now is... Um, you know, what effects does racial discrimination have on the U.S. creative economy? And, and starting with that broader question uh, around race, of course, opens up a re- research agenda that may allow us to consider the ways that um, marginalization and oppression affect the creative economy um, in general. And, and, and there are three studies that brought me to this question Um, In 2020, Citibank did a study and learned that over a 20-year period, the U.S. economy lost $16 trillion as a result of anti-Black racism. Um, There was a study by Georgetown professors about higher education. Racial inequity cost the U.S. economy about $956 billion annually. And then there was a study um, that was done uh, on high, Hollywood and anti-black racism in Hollywood cost the industry ten billion dollars annually, and so when I think about the nonprofit uh, creative sector and creative economy, that which is constantly, you know, talking about being underfunded and lacking f- and money or lacking financial resources, how in the world can you rationalize? discrimination, marginalization, oppression, and subjugation when um, there are financial implications or economic implications for the perpetuation of racial discrimination and and oppression of all kinds?
2: You'd mentioned, I mean, there is a really obvious research agenda in there, but will that coalesce into a future book? Um, Is there a, um, yeah, a, a sort of a a chance to return to, to some of the work on opera. Um, where, where are you going to go next?
1: Absolutely. So I am currently working on uh, my
2: second solo authored book, um, and it's
1: uh, called Achieving Creative Justice in the U.S. Creative Sector. And so I am recontextualizing Mark Banks's work on creative justice in the U.S. through the lens of access diversity equity and inclusion and trying to operationalize in a very practical way how cultural organizations and creative sectors uh, can be agents and actors to uh, living a creative and expressive life for um, historically And continuously marginalized and oppressed people. Um, I've also written a few book chapters. Um, One, Moving Beyond Opera's Races, uh, was recently published in a volume um, on on, uh, music, labor, and inequality. Uh, I have a second um, book chapter that is coming out in um, a book where I am um, interviewing um, the the space moderator and the initiator of the Black Administrators of Opera. Uh, so, in this kind of post George Floyd period, I'm 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 trying to use phenomenology to document. Um, and explore some of the changes that are happening and, and as a result of that. And so um, I'm also currently working on a chapter that's looking at or using Afro, Afrofuturism to talk about the ways in which Black people are writing themselves into the future of classical music and opera. Um, Let's see, what else am I I working on? Oh, I'm working with the League of American Orchestras on a report um, on race, ethnic, and gender diversity in orchestras. Um, I'm working on another um, report for the Hewlett Foundation around arts leadership in the Bay Area. And, um, you know, anyone who reads my work will see that there is a theme of, um, you know, race, gender, um, and, um, those social identities and how they come into play throughout all of these things, because, um, I don't, I don't feel like there's enough work in our, in our fields that do that. And so I want to be a part of modeling that. I want to be a part of, um, bringing forth you know emerging researchers and, and showing them a pathway or uh, encourage them encouraging them along a pathway that do more of that work and, and bring more of that kind of uh, analyses to our conversations around arts management and cultural policy.